0: Lord, be merciful. We ask for your mercy that your Holy Spirit would illumine the word to us and that even that we would feel the right things in our hearts as we work through this passage. And as we think about the evil in the world, the sin that is everywhere present, that our hearts would be broken and that you would mend them. In Jesus' name, amen. We left Jacob in a, Pretty, on a pretty high note, he had just come into the promised land with his children, right? All safely. If you remember, the word was in peace. They had come peacefully into the promised Land. And it seemed like now, after so many years, that finally Jacob and his family were going to live into their calling from God, to be a blessing to all nations by bearing the presence of God to the nations around them. It seemed like everything was situ- she just wants a drink of water. It seemed like everything was situated for that to happen. And then, lest we put all our hope in Jacob, or in humanity, or even the people of Israel, Genesis 34 really knocks him down a couple of pegs. One commentator aptly put it this way, thinking on Genesis 34, he said, quote, There are no heroes in this episode, end quote. And on that encouraging note, let's begin. Verse 1, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land." If you've forgotten Dinah, that's okay. She was just mentioned one time in Genesis when Moses, who's the author of Genesis, when he posted her birth announcement on the Genesis 30 thread. That's the first time and the only time we've heard of Dinah. So we're reminded here, Moses is kind to us, that Dinah is Leah's daughter. And if she's Leah's daughter, who else is daughter is she? Jacob. Jacob. She is Jacob. It's a text. Who she had born to Jacob. Lest we forget, this is Jacob's daughter. And she went out to see the women in the land. There are clues in the Hebrew throughout the chapter that Dinah, let this just frame as we work through this, is very young. Just Like in this culture, she has just come to the age where she can be married. So very young. And she went out. She left the home of Jacob. She left the land that they lived in. She left the safety of her father and her mother and her brothers. And she went out by herself to see what the women of Canaan are like, just to, to check it out. Now, if there are no heroes in this chapter, Dinah is the one in desperate need of a hero. She's the one who needs a hero. We should not find any fault with Dinah as we work through this passage. Some interpreters in the past have tried to implicate Dinah, saying something like, she went out looking for trouble, as it were. But I think they're off. Maybe what we should think about and ask is, where is Jacob? His daughter has left by herself very young. Where is Jacob? Where? Yeah, back at home. <laughs> We're going to see he's pretty silent throughout here. He is to protect her and care for his children that God has given her, given him. And now she's off on her own. So I would just pause and say, Fathers, uh, speaking myself as well, future fathers, where are your daughters? Where are they at? We have a God-given obligation to know what our daughters are up to, to know what they're wandering into, to know who they're hanging out with and what they're investigating on their phones or streaming or watching. We have been called to protect them, all of our children. And we'll see that Dinah on her own is a bad situation. Look what it says in verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her. That word seized is translated in the passage took a couple times. We're going to see that word over and over. They took, he took, she took. This idea of just taking Grabbing what is not yours. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Verse 3. And his soul was drawn. Good question. We'll answer in just a second. His soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get. That's the same word. Seized. Take. Get. Get. This girl for my wife. Now, there are children in the room, so we'll work carefully and know what we're saying. Um, but here we go. Shechem is the prince of the area. His father sold Jacob the land that they live on currently. And Shechem, Dinah's out seeing the women of the land, and then the prince comes out and he sees Dinah. And it says that he seized her, he lay with her, and humiliated her. Believe it or not, the English ESV softens the translation a bit with the word with. It's not in the text, it is more wooden translation. He seized her and lay her and humiliated her. It sounds Awful because it is. There's no way to read this, although some have tried. There's no way to read this and not come to the conclusion that Shechem aggressively forced himself on this young woman. The word humiliated is to the point. But that word in Scripture is also translated oppressed. Put down. Afflicted. That's the word we're looking at here we're also going to read throughout the passage that Shechem, what he did to her. We'll read this two, two times. He defiled her. I will see that word twice. The brothers will say, this is outrageous. The closest thing in the, in the Hebrew Bible to this is in 2 Samuel 13. If you're familiar with that story of Tamar and her brother Amnon. Amnon, her brother, was going trying to take advantage of his sister And Tamar was resisting. And she says this in verse 12. This is 2 Samuel 13. No, my brother, do not violate me. That word violate is the same word in Hebrew as we read here, humiliate. Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. We're going to see those phrases in our text. In short, this is one of the most gruesome evils vile injustices that can happen in our world. A man taking advantage of a young woman in this way. It's nasty. And if you feel uneasy this morning, like your skin's crawling, you should. And the shocking comments in verse 3 and verse 4 do not alleviate our feelings either. Suddenly the perpetrator loves the woman and decides after this terrible crime... (coughs) We're soulmates. He tries speaking to her heart. That's the word. He spoke to her tenderly. The Hebrew spoke to her heart. He's trying to woo her after he has abused her. Then, without remorse, note, students of the word, as we go through Genesis 34, will there any be, be any apology? Will there any, be any comment of the crime? There won't be. I'll just, just watch for that. But without apology... He sends his dad to negotiate a marriage with this woman. We know that this is all backwards and upside down. And it's not, as they say, above board the way things are going down. Look at verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had, Shechem had defiled, whose daughter? His daughter, Dinah. But, but it's the simple And. And his sons were with his livestock in the field. The word so, it's the same simple. And, so, so might be, let's just, so, that's what the ESV says. Jacob held his peace until they came. How can Jacob go from such a hero in the faith in the last chapter and such a failed father in the next This is his daughter, and when he hears his daughter has been defiled, it says he held his peace. It's he was quiet. He didn't do or say anything. And the word "so" in the ESV makes it feel like he was just waiting for his boys to come home and take care of it. But that's not really what it was saying. It's saying, and he was quiet. His boys were out in the field. He didn't do anything. He was silent. a great injustice has occurred and Jacob says nothing until verse 30. There's 31 verses in the chapter and he doesn't speak till verse 30 and what he says has nothing to do with Dinah. It's heartbreaking how passive Jacob is in this chapter. Children of God, Emmaus, this is the wrong response to injustice. A non-response is a response, and it is the wrong response to injustice. In Isaiah 30:18, it says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, is the God of justice. And then in chapter 1, verse 17 of Isaiah, God commands his people. He says, Seek justice, correct oppression, and then he says, Bring justice. God is for what is right and his people are called to be about what is right as well. We should be motivated towards justice. And when we see injustice, that is true biblical injustice, true, what is truly wrong according to God's will. When we see that, our posture should be toward correcting, toward healing. So how are we to respond? This is a good question. We've seen Jacob's non-response. You're going to continue to see it the entire chapter. Hamor He comes and speaks, it says, to the father, but Jacob doesn't say anything. And then it'll say that Shechem, he speaks to the father and the boys, but Jacob doesn't say anything. He's non-responsive. How are we to respond? Look at verse 6. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. One of the dads is speaking, right? Mm -hmm. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, of this humiliation. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by laying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. Jacob's children, these sons, feel what we feel. They are indignant and angry because of what happened to their sister. The word indignant, it has the idea of pain attached to it. They are in pain over what has happened. And as the Hebrew indicates, they're burning with a white, hot anger. The word angry, they're angry. It, it's this burning fire. They have this, out, this intense anger. They're outrageous. That word is used in the Old Testament to talk about crimes that just can't go overlooked. Something has to be done. Let's find out. The righteous on a settlement burning in the hearts of the brothers. Listen, it's the proper emotional response to injustice. True injustice, like the violent oppression of a young innocent victim, should pain God's people. So they have the right feeling about it. But do they act rightly? Do they seek justice in the right way? Let's find out. We're going to look at two conversations here, one between Hamor and Shechem and the Jacobites, the family, and the other between Hamor, Shechem, and the people, the Hivites, the people of the land. So let's have a look. Verse eight. I'm going to read down through verse twelve. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, "The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife." Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters to yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great bride price and a gift, as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Amor tries to make it sound like a really good arrangement, this intermarriage, like it would be a good thing. But we should remember, students of God's word, how did Abraham feel about his sons marrying Canaanite women's, women? Did he feel good or bad about it? Not a good idea. How about Isaac and Rebecca? How did they feel about their children marrying Canaanite women? They didn't feel good about it. Because these Canaanites worship false gods, they have all these things that God does not approve of, and the patriarchs understood, okay, if our children marry into this, the the worship of the one true God will be threatened. It's not going to be a good thing. But Hamor, he's leading with an economic strategy. Hey, if we do this, if we join our families together in this way, it will financially benefit everyone. That's the idea. You'll have more property, you'll have more sheep and goats, we'll have more sheep. Everything will be better in that sense for everyone. Shechem then speaks to the father and the brothers. He says, name the price, anything it costs for her to be my wife. It might at first sound like Shechem is trying to do the right thing. Like, okay, now we need to get married. But Shechem, I don't think is acting appropriately at all. And here's why. From neither Hamor nor Shechem in this negotiation, do we hear any admission of, of wrong, of guilt, no apology? There's not even a comment about Dinah's humiliation. Where is Dinah in all of this negotiation? Where is she? Where's her voice in this? Lutheran theologian Chad Bird says, quote, It's all just business as usual, which should shock us. I told you in the band app this week, it's a tough passage. Let's press on. Verse 13. I'll go to verse 17. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. That's a key word, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take, there's the same word, we'll take our daughter, and we will be gone. Everything Jacob's sons say to Shechem and Hamor is said how? Above board, deceit. deceitfully. They are in pain because of Dinah's, she's been defiled. They're burning with anger and rightfully so. But to try to fight for against the injustice, they war with deceit. They say, the only way we're going to agree to this is if you're circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign that you belonged to God by faith. that You were God's. And God was going to use you to bless all nations. That you lived your life in the presence of God. And that you were to bear God's love and mercy and justice in the world. That's what the sign of circumcision was. And here the men of the covenant, they're not thinking about drawing these nations into the blessing of God. They're not calling these men to come and find forgiveness in God. They're not trying to extend blessing or life with God. What they're saying is deceit. It's all in deceit. But neither the young, passionate, guilty Shechem nor the deceitful father Hamor knows this. And so in verse 18, it says this. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing. It's almost like he did it right on the spot. Uh, Where was I? Because he delighted in Jacob's daughter Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, That is, every able-bodied man would have come to the gate to hear from their rulers. So every man who's able to walk to the gate has come, saying, These men are at peace with us. That's interesting. They think there's peace. Well, We'll find out there's not. Then he says, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition. It's like he's been buttering them up for this moment. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And there's a a wild protest from all the men. But then he says in verse 23, hey, listen, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of his city." Shechem, he's this young prince, the next ruler, he's got a lot of honor. So the people in the city will listen when he speaks. They wanna know what he has to say. And he casts this vision of marrying, intermarriage, this marriage is between the peoples so that they can benefit from one another. And then we find out in verse 23 that Hamor and Shechem have not been dealing truthfully either. It says in verse 23, their livestock, their property, and all their beasts will be ours. Shechem and Hamor, they have plans for more than just Dinah. She goes unmentioned here, right? They have plans for more than just her. They want to consume the people of Israel into their own nation to take all that is theirs. It's different than what Hamor told Jacob and his children. So Shechem, he paints this glorious picture. We can have all they have if we just do this one thing. And all the men agree, all of them are circumcised. And then three days later, all of them are dead. Look at verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. These are Leah's children as well. Here's that word. Took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure. Why would they feel secure? There is a word in verse 21. Why would they feel secure? These people are at, do you remember? Peace Peace with us. They've been lulled into this sense of security. And while they have this this security, it says, they killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. And here's the word, took. They took Dinah. Here's where she's been, out of Shechem's house, and went away. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob, this is the rest of the sons, came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Here's the word again. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth and their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. In a vengeful attempt at justice, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's full-blooded brothers took swords and slaughtered Hamor and Shechem. But not just these guilty abuser and greedy father, lying negotiator, they also slaughtered all the men in the city. Then we're told Simeon and Levi took Dinah out of Shechem's home. This is important for us because in all these negotiations that have been going on, this young girl is a captive in Shechem's home. I think that's really what's happening because of verse 31 and what the brothers say in verse 31, but we'll get there. They've been threatened by oppression, by greed, the capture of their daughter, and they act. After they kill all the men, the other sons come and plunder wealth from the city. While the men of Israel were right to be enraged by the injustice committed against their sister, a daughter of Israel... This moment, listen, this moment of revenge is never looked at in a positive light throughout Scripture. In Genesis 49, Jacob is dying and he's giving blessings to all of his sons. Except for two, he gives curses. Who do you think those two are? Simeon and Levi. And he says, you're cursed because you you took the sword and you murdered innocent men. That's Genesis 49, 5, and 7. Jesus pulls a quote out of here in the Garden of Gethsemane to his disciple Peter. So, right emotion, wrong action to resolve the injustice. Finally, the patriarch speaks. Jacob has something to say. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me, by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against who? What's it say? Against me and attack who? Me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob, he doesn't condemn the action necessarily. He definitely doesn't speak up about his daughter. What he does talk about is himself eight times in one verse. The man who had been afraid of Esau's army is now all of a sudden afraid of the Canaanites. They're going to hear about this and come in full force and destroy me. The brothers respond. Look at verse 31. They said, should he treat our sister, like a prostitute. That's what's been going on. Is that how a daughter of Israel should be? What they say there is, no matter the consequences, we had to do this. That's what they're saying. And Jacob is suddenly silent again because the sons are right. No, Dinah should not be treated this way. She should not be defiled and ripped from the covenant community over and over and over again while nothing is done. She should be avenged and rescued and restored to the community, loved and healed. But the children of Jacob has sought justice in a way that displeases God. For we know he he hates the shedding of innocent blood. Let's just be honest, Genesis 34 is quite a nightmare. Maybe there's some in the room who have uh, experienced abuse before in the past, or someone in a, close to us has experienced abuse. And so we really, there's, there's a rawness to what's going on in Genesis 34. A people far from God seeks to harm them. A father refuses to fight for his daughter. Brothers avenge their sister, but at the cost of countless lives, Jacob's children, who have been marked to be a blessing to all nations, go into a city and they rob women who have just lost their husbands and children who have just lost their fathers. God's people are now on the run because other nations are going to hear about this. The covenant sign becomes a sign of death. And through it all, we remember from the very beginning, there's this young, innocent woman (coughs) who's been taken advantage of, and she is in need of a hero. A hero. Someone to rescue her. We can often... Feel like we're living in the midst of Genesis. You're right, Salem. They did come and take her from Shechem's house. But was justice done in the right way? We can often feel like we live in the midst of a Genesis 34. We look around and we see injustice in the city. In our neighborhoods, even in our families, in our country, we constantly hear of true injustice, and rumors of injustice is a catchword right now. We hear about it all the time. Crimes are committed against people whom we know and love. We sometimes are the recipients of abuse and oppression. It hurts, and gruesome crimes like this one done to this, this little girl leaves us longing for something better thinking there's got to be somewhere better and pure where things like this are not a part of the story. We've also been guilty of responding wrongly to injustice. When we hear of injustice and we just, uh, there's no action in our lives, no emotion felt, nothing done to be seekers of justice, as God would command us. We've also responded to injustice with Vengeful wrath and revenge. Hurting people as we try to get back. And Dara remind us that we too have been guilty of afflicting others. Perhaps not as gruesome and vile as this thing done to Dinah. But we have been, nonetheless, we have acted in sinful ways. Hurting people made in God's image. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Genesis 34 is just so real in explaining a world decimated by sin. And we look at Genesis, we look at our own situations and the evil in this world, and we say, where is God? Have you ever asked that question? Where is God in this Look at Genesis 34. Where is God? Where is he mentioned? Where is he consulted? Who goes to pray to him? Who leans on him in their brokenness? Where is he, church? In Genesis 34, where where was he? There's not one word about God. No, Elohim, Elohim. No Yahweh, just a big mess. Wherever God is absent, wherever God's people are faithless, wherever sin, there is sin, death, and brokenness. No clue how to fight for justice. And remember, our sinful acts against our neighbors, they're actually fundamentally against God. David, he says this in Psalm 51 after committing a crime, a gruesome crime, I've sinned against God. In the flow of Genesis, we have to wonder what happens now. God's covenant people just made it to their destination and now they're threatened by the nations around them in this brokenness. What will God do? Can he bring justice to the situation? Does he have a solution for the brokenness? Will he save his faithless covenant people? Will he save me? Look, you, you open your Bibles. Look at Genesis 35 verse 1 what's it say? First word. Someone say it. God God said. said. And we all take a deep breath. God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel. Dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau to the God who's always with so Jacob said to his household, to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods. Where would the foreign gods have come from? They just took them from the Hivites. Get rid of all of that. What's he say? Purify yourselves. Change your filthy garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so I can make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Look at verse five. And as they journeyed a terror from God, fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God is faithful when we are not. And his solution to the brokenness and injustice and the failure even of his people is go to the altar. Go, I will protect you. Go and make an altar. Be purified. When we are guilty of afflicting others, harming innocent people, failing to seek God, he says, go to the altar. When we have been harmed and hurt by injustice in the world, he says, go. He's talking to Dinah too. Go to the altar. Why would we go because that's where God meets us. God comes into our Genesis 34. All of life is Genesis 34, like it's broken. There's crime and violence, injustice and sin, and God comes into it. He loves us so much that he comes into all of the injustice Sending his son, Jesus Christ, born into this world that we experience and that we afflict and that we find affliction in. Jesus comes into this world and he fights for justice. He helps the oppressed. He cares for the poor. Heals the brokenhearted. He meets the prisoner. He assists the lame, forgives the sinner, loves the enemy, heals the broken, gives generously. He comes and he meets women who are in need of a savior, a hero, a healer. I think of John 4. He meets this Samaritan woman who is living in shame. And the God of the universe speaks to her and heals her. I think of Mark 5. Jesus meets a woman who's been bleeding for years, unloved by the community, cast out. And though Jacob wouldn't say it, Jesus looks at her and he says, Daughter, I'll heal you. I'll fight for you to the end. I'll give you justice. In Luke 7, Jesus meets a woman who's ravaged by death. Her son has been killed because of the penalty of sin and he has compassion on her and he raises her son to life. And before it all, God looked on a woman a young maiden from an obscure town. And he said to Mary, I would like for you to bear my son. I will come upon you by the Spirit and give the greatest gift to the world. And Mary says, yes, I'm your servant. And then Jesus, perfect, holy, righteous, and just Jesus, he goes to the altar. Not the one where unjust priests minister insufficient sacrifices. He goes to, as Hebrews 13 tells us, to the altar that is outside the camp. Where's Dinah at in this whole story? Is she in the camp? She's taken a captive and Jesus is taken a captive and drug out of the city, out of the home of God's people. And he's crucified on the altar that looks like a cross. And there at the altar, Jesus takes in his body all of our transgressions, all of our injustices, and he sheds his blood for our redemption, for our healing, to satisfy our need for justice and God's requirement for it. And then, listen, everybody hang in there. Just give me a little bit more time. Isaiah 53 explains what the Savior will do to rescue us. And twice, it uses the same word to explain Jesus that we read in Genesis 34 two, humiliated. Isaiah 53, children, you have this as a coloring page this morning. It says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Here's the word, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, all, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Same word. Jesus was afflicted because we afflict and because we are afflicted. And he invites us to come and meet him at the cross to see his mercy and his faithfulness, to see his power to save sinners, to see his healing love applied to those who have been afflicted. And the only response he says that we need is faith and the work at the altar. Dinah and every, everyone in her situation Everyone who has been afflicted, we need the true hero. Think about Dinah for a moment. He comes to be a gentle savior who can rescue her by giving himself for her. Jesus is the better brother who would die for her. That's how much he loves her. He's the greater father who would move to speak up and rescue her. He's the true husband who would never hurt her, never harm her, never humiliate her. Afflict her. He's the avenger that her brothers and father could not be. And he calls on us, those of us who are to seek justice, correct oppression. He calls on us, leave vengeance to me. In the garden, he speaks to Peter, who has just taken a sword and sliced a man. Everyone who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, we read this. We know that he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Church, no injustice will go unaccounted for. When Jesus comes, we come Lord Jesus, when he comes, every injustice will be sufficiently handled. And only the innocent will escape. And only the innocent are those who come to the altar. And so here's how we respond to injustice in the world. True biblical injustice. We run to the altar, we rest in the power of Jesus. We meet with God at the sacrament of his cross in Holy Communion. And we rest in the goodness of Jesus who is with us and who is everything to us. And here's what we do, ready? You wanna fight injustice, you minister the cross. You find the broken who have been afflicted, and you show them how good Jesus is, how he can fill every gap and bring ultimate healing. You find the enemy causing affliction, and you minister the good news of the gospel to them, calling them to repentance and faith. And in our Genesis 34, as we remember that Jesus is with us in the suffering, and that God is surely coming again to remove all brokenness and to build a city. Hebrews 13 says, a city where this won't be part of the story. Let's pray. Father, you know each of us in our hearts how these things can hit us and affect us. You know our past and present and future. But this is true that you have come to bring healing to the broken. Forgiveness to the sinner, life everlasting to those who come to your altar and a place, a glorious place, where these kinds of injustices will not be part of the story. Let this truth give us rest. Let this truth motivate us to seek justice, to to correct oppression with the good news of the cross. Thank you that you're with us. And we ask you to come even now. Come into our hearts, Lord Jesus, as we wait for your visible, powerful return. In Jesus' name, amen.